Welcome to Neuromovement Revolution with Anat Benyel, where you will discover breakthrough possibilities for your life through the brain's power to change. We're so happy that you can join us in making the impossible possible. Welcome, 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 Jill Balti-Taylor to our <laughs> Neuromovement Revolution podcast. We are thrilled to have you, and we are also thrilled to have all our viewers. It's really an honor and a delight and a great, great opportunity for all the people that are going to be listening to this podcast. So, Jill, many of the podcasts have know who you are, read your book, um, certainly seen your amazing TED Talk, My Stroke of Insight. But for those who haven't, would you mind telling a little bit about your background and your story so people know the context, okay, of this conversation? So I grew grew up to study the brain because I have a brother who's been diagnosed with a brain disorder, schizophrenia. And as a sister and a scientist, I wanted to understand why could I connect my dreams to my reality and I could make my dreams come true, but his brain could not connect to reality and his ideas still became delusion. So I was studying the brain at Harvard Medical School, teaching and performing research. And I woke up one morning and I was experiencing a major hemorrhage in the left half of my brain. And over the course of four hours, through the eyes of a neuroscientist, a neuroanatomist, I watched my brain completely deteriorate in its ability to process information. And by the afternoon of the stroke, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. Quite incredible. It was a big wow. (laughs) Well, I think it was a big wow, and then I think it was another eight years wow, right? Yes. So... Yeah, so then, then it took me eight years to completely recover. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the first topic that I selected for our podcast was what is it like to be a child with special needs? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I, there are many reasons I chose it. Uh, one of them is that we're so focused on fixing or getting the child to be well, which is understood that oftentimes we lose connection with the child and we forget that the child is having an experience all the time. And that experience is impacting what's happening to the child probably way more and beyond what we think we're implementing or necessarily think we're implementing at that moment. The first time I saw you in person was at, in Omega, at Omega Institute, and you were giving a talk. Uh, I was teaching a workshop. I finished uh, my workshop. You gave an evening talk. I was sitting and listening to you, and there were a number of moments that were just, like, remarkable for me. And one of them that I want to bring up, and I remember it very, very vividly, was when you told the story about the doctor asking you to squeeze his hand. And I thought that that goes perfectly well with the question what is it like to be just had a stroke person what is it like to be a child with special needs any kind of special needs would you tell us that story ah 
So yes, the doctor comes in and uh, the, um, my relationship, my, the hemorrhage happened in my left hemisphere. So language was gone. My definition of the boundaries of where I begin and end is gone. Uh, and really my ability to communicate with the external world was gone. My ability to perceive the external world was turned on major height because I could perceive, but I, I just, there, the interaction wasn't going to happen. So the doctor came in and he grabbed my hand and he said, squeeze my hand. And from my perspective, I'm, I'm first having to be aware that there's even someone there who wants my attention. So I needed that person to look me in the eye, get in my face and softly not screaming. I mean, it's amazing how people think that stroke survivors are deaf. We're not deaf. We simply do not understand. So, and if you get loud at us, then we find you to not be a safe place and we're scared and we move into alarm, alarm, alert, alert. You're not a safe place. I need to protect myself. So that shuts me down even more. So I needed somebody to come into my face, speak very gently, enunciate clearly, and be willing to repeat because I first need to know that you need my attention. And then second, you're speaking, and I don't understand language. So I'm watching your lips and trying to relate some sound to some meaning. And in the absence of that, I don't even know what a hand is. And I don't know where I begin and where I end, so I don't have, oh, yes, this is a hand, just squeeze my hand. And so once I actually figured out, okay, hand, the hand is at the end of this thing, and I somehow or another have to get a connection from my brain all the way down that highway to my hand. And so I'm thinking, okay, squeeze, what's a squeeze and how do I get that to happen? And so it literally takes me hours to figure out what you're talking about and what you need me to do. And so then someone else comes in and they give me their hand and I squeeze their hand because I'm so excited. I have finally figured out what is a hand, what is a squeeze, how do I get movement down there, uh, power down there so I can actually do a squeeze and then someone at the other end is all excited because oh my gosh she squeezed my hand she squeezed my hand and then they go to the doctor and the doctor says oh it was just a reflex yeah and the message that I get as a patient is if I don't process information in the speed of time that is normal reality then the world looks at me as not able and what I really needed was somebody to come to me and figure out well what do I need? And I needed patience and I needed just an, an added level of awareness and consciousness brought to me as a patient to be heard. And since I'm not on your temporality of time, I needed someone to recognize I was on my own and to value that. You know, hearing you say it now moves me as much, if not even more than the first time. It it's such a great way of creating a window for the other side. And I'd like to put a few points in there. And if you have anything you want to say, by all means, of course. So what you said is you need somebody to be close to you, to talk to you softly, to look for you to be there with them. So again, it's not 
testing you, squeeze my hand. She can't squeeze it. She's no good. She probably will never, whatever. All, you know, the prognosis thing. But you need somebody actually to approach you with the assumption that someone is there. Exactly. Whether that assumption is correct or not correct. And of course, in my experience, when the, all the people, adults and children that I have approached in this way, are always there. Yes, we are, I mean, in, we are here. That needs yes. to be assumption number one. Even if we're completely disabled, we are here. As long as we're alive, there's something going on. And you either want to connect with that, or you want to assume that if it doesn't look and act like you, then it's not valid and it's not present. Perfect. We're watching, and we're watching. Yeah. And we're so and, we are aware. And we are built, and we can go into that later if you want, we're built to connect. We're, we're social beings. Our existence depends on being with other people, other brains, and connecting. So, But I, I also want to say, and I always say this to my medical students, is that you have to make the assumption that I am somewhere and I'm having an experience. And if you want me to endure the agony of connecting with you and paying attention to you, because if it's not my natural way of being, I'm, that's my growth edge, then you have to be more interesting and more available than my experience without you. And for me, that experience was euphoria and bliss. So I needed people to come and pay attention. Turn off your phones. Get away from the electronics. Get soft and gentle with me. Come one on one with me. Be present for me. And if you're present for me, then I find you worthy of giving my attention to, and I will try. But if you're not and you're disconnected, why would I even bother to try? It's phenomenal what you just said, because the last, the second podcast was, uh, from a, a, was from fixing to connecting. And what is to connect? And we'll get, and you just described something so powerful about it. Really, thank you, thank you. So still following your story that you said the person looked at you as if you are not able to begin with, kind of testing you. And it's so many times working with the children is not providing them necessarily with what they need to start moving in the direction we want them to move, but we test them for them to prove to us that they are good enough or that they can or that there is hope. And the, the responsibility who carries the knowledge and the hope is on the part of the parent or on the part of the doctor, not on the part of the patient or the child. Right. So, I, I would find my, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I would find myself looking out at these people thinking, you have absolutely no idea how to communicate or connect with me. It's all about you and on your timetable. And it's I, what I needed instead was people to come in and nurture me and create a safe place for me to want to interact. It's not that I'm not there. It's that it, come find me. Come find me. I'm here. Come find me and help me find my way out. If I had the neural pathway to get from where I am to where you want me to be, you wouldn't need to come and help me. 
but I'm the patient here. I'm not here to reassure you of anything. I need you. And this is the moment where I always tell people, you know, it's not about us, the external. It's about come find me. Where is that person? How do you love them and nurture them and help them feel safe enough so that they will actually give us the attention? Because as you know, without attention, you're not going to get to step number two. Absolutely. And, and w w when you say that, it's, it's, it's like the, you become the path. Your ability to find the person, you go there and you notice. So one of the things, so I want to go back to the squeeze the hand, right? So first they tell you to squeeze their hand because they're testing you. And you are like, oh, you're trying. And you know, you're, you're in bliss, which was a great thing, you know. Lovely. <laughs> a better option than the pain and trying to focus and how hard we have to work just to pay attention. And, yes. And, and, and you, you fail the test. Yes. And you know, I think it's so important for people to know that on some level in your world, you realize you failed the test. Yes. Am I correct? Yes. Well, you know that, one, I don't know what you're talking about. Two, I'm being tested. Three, I'm going to put that information in my hopper, process it, figure it out, and then give you a response. So not only do you do I fail the test, but you don't even care if I try to figure it out over a process of time. Because he didn't know you were. Exactly. So then, you see, the assumption is... You have to respond, as you said, at the speed that is normal for somebody who didn't have a stroke a, a day or before or something like that. So, so then he comes back, he takes your hand and you squeeze it or you squeeze somebody else's hand and they told him. And he says, oh, that was involuntary. That was a reflex. That was just, you know, the spasticity in the arm, right. something like that. One of the things that I tell my students when I train them, and I realize it's what I have done from the beginning, is how much evidence do you need in order to know that it's so? Yeah. That, the, that the less evidence you need, yeah. the more you have the generosity of spirit yes. to assume or to just choose, not even assume, but just to choose to, that that was intentional. Yes. The more you connect with a person, because what's the big loss if you assumed it was intentional and it wasn't? There is zero loss. Yes. And what's in it also is the willingness and the development of the observational powers and the heart powers and the trust in the process, the safety in the process on the part of the person that is doing well, right? The doctor or the parent or whatnot, that things are going to get better. Let's just find the way. Right. So how much evidence do you need? And when I built my center here in San Rafael, there was a contractor, and the contractor, Dan, was a, you know, barely a bit overweight, heavy drinker, smoker, our Irish guy. 
<laughs> so, sorry, Anne, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and he at age he was then maybe 47 after he finished working he got a massive stroke like yours but both sides of the brain and they didn't even think he would survive the second day the the neurologist agreed that i go and see if interact with him i wanted to see because <clears throat> I knew coming in early is the best thing I can. He was unconscious. He was under propofol, you know, to keep him from thrashing. He, he was hooked to everything you can imagine hooking, including a breathing machine. And I talked to him first. I knew he knew my voice. So I used that. And what I do with people, by the way, and I did with him, I talked to him very slowly. And I started very slowly telling him his story. And the story was, you were at a ball game of your son, then blah, blah, then blah, blah. Now you are, so you had a stroke. I don't know if he understands anything. Right. But I found that when I do that, I put some order in the, just my voice. It just puts everything in some of kind of cadence, yes. a little less. and then. I held his, I took his hand and I said, I'm taking your hand and I'm holding it. Perfect. And I said to, so I described, I narrated for him every step. And I said, Dan, if you hear me, move your hand, not squeeze. Squeeze is already too organized, too much of a specific outcome. But for someone like him, if something is working in the background, then then movement right. and i waited because i knew it's like throwing a stone into a very deep well and it will take a time till it hits the water and then it will take time till the echo comes back yeah. so and it took a few seconds I, I don't know how long it took i just waited yeah. and then he started moving his hand yeah. and i said thank you for moving your hand yeah. and i got yeah. one of one, just I finished the story. One of my graduates who came in every day for 10 to 15 minutes, twice a day, I told her no more. And I said to her, don't try to fix him. Don't try to make him do anything. Just get a communication with his brain. Because what his brain needs is to find itself again and to find something positive, not failures, but something positive to organize around. Right. Right. So that's what you're talking about, right? Right. And, and a squeeze of brain requires distal control of small muscles. And that, that's a highly organized, sophisticated thing. Yes. But if you wanted me to move my hand, I, you gave, just gave me the option of moving any of the muscles going over my yes. shoulder, o, o, over my elbow, over my wrist. I mean, you gave me an opportunity to do a big gross motor movement to show you that I'm, I've got something going on in here. And maybe I can respond at that level, but to squeeze a hand goes from, from a big amorphous blob in my brain to a group of tiny little muscles that you want me to use. And that's a lot of work. It's, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of work in terms that it took months and years yes. of 
uh, differentiation in the brain. And, you know, we say the job of the brain is to put order in the disorder and make sense out of the nonsense. And that is something that you said, that you're the only other person I heard say like that, aside from me (laughs) and my teacher, you know. So, so... We hang out together or not. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, I'm... I think I'm getting a little bit of a cold, so when I cough, I apologize for that. So... um, so we talk about um, from fixing to connecting, and you already, by the way, I want to say about Dan, 12 days later, every time, so it was very interesting, every time, it wasn't me, it was one of my graduates who lived nearby, came twice a day, her name is Beth, and Beth was perfect for it because she was also a school teacher, and she worked with little children. So she had the capacity to really put very tiny little elements, right? But big time, you know, in terms of waiting for his brain to respond. And on the third day of her doing it, one day she forgot to take off the socks. She had time to put socks on his feet. I told her, start with the feet. There's enormous amount of information coming from the base of the feet, so on and so forth. So she came back and he was lying on his back with one leg straight and one leg bent and she knew she learned from me she said dan i'm back i forgot to take the socks off but talking slowly and discreetly uh, meaning clearly and she put one sock and then she said dan your other leg is bent can you straighten it and she waited and he slowly straightened his leg now she again didn't need more evidence that something was going on The nurses noticed that every time she worked with him, his breathing got better and he got a lot calmer. So then they agreed to take him off the propofol about 15 minutes before she showed up. So he would be less drugged and the brain would be more available. 12 days later, they took him off all the machines. And I don't know exactly how long, but he set himself up. And he asked to go to the bathroom. Wow. He was a bit aphasic. I mean, there was still some work to do. And the doctor said, it's one in a million. And I said, no, it's zero in a million unless you change how you approach your patients. Exactly. No, yeah. I absolutely agree completely. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think that the, the concept of every time you go in, you introduce yourself, you tell them what you're doing. And because we don't remember if we've had a stroke, we are not keeping track of all the data coming at us. We're in overwhelm. But by the way, he remembered nothing from the 12 days we worked with him. Zero. That's right. And so every time you go and you, you're with somebody, re- remind them who are you, what you're doing. Be gentle, be informative. We're grateful because that helps us feel safe. And if you're, you're giving us the, you know, coming in day after day after day and making the assumption that we know who you are, well, we probably don't. And so the more information you give us gently and slowly and just awareness, just treat me as though you would want to be treated. This is one of the things that I keep hammering on is if if you were in that condition, do you want people coming in and flopping you around and moving you quickly and doing this and doing that? No, you would want to be treated as though you're that infant or you're that, you're that 
that patient who may now be infantile in their processing. And we need gentle and slow and loving. And you might only get through half of what you thought you were going to get through, but that's the half that's important. Great. You know, so talking about uh, the infant or the child, what is it like to be the child with special needs? And this time we're talking about getting the treatment or the intervention. Unless it's a question of life and death, and then you go as fast as you have to and you do what you absolutely have to, or you absolutely do what you have to do. When we look to facilitate the growth, the development, we always want, and we get to talk about the essentials in a minute, uh, but imagine the child, you move them, you talk to them, you pull them, you ask them to stand. Standing doesn't mean anything to a one-and-a-half-year-old or a two-year-old that doesn't know what standing feels like. Actually, nothing means much to us unless it's associated to our own inner feeling apparatus. And words get meaning through experience. You know, or we slap them with meaning that might be the wrong meaning, but we attach to it our experience. Always, always, always. So anyway, so I want to ask you a question. We, um, on the talking from fixing to connecting again, coming to that conversation, um, in, in the Anadbanil Method Neuro Movement, uh, we talk about the nine essentials. And I remember the phone call when I was driving up, back up from Esalen after doing a workshop with Byron Katie. So I was in a quite wonderful space, you know, r- right brain space. And you were starting to read the book or you read the book and you, you told me something that, again, I remember. You said, Anat, you defined in your book, in the nine essentials, what my mother and I, my mother, your amazing mother, Gigi, that I adored, and you did for me, for me to, in order for me to recover. So you, I, if I recall correctly from your book, after about two days in rehab, your mother decided to take you home. Yes. So that's a very courageous and unusual and independent act. Can you tell, so we're talking about from fixing to connecting. She pulled you out of the place that was going to fix you or try to fix you. Right. So can you say what, what, what got Gigi to want to do that? So Gigi believed that uh, my mother was, was a, an academic, and so she was a teacher. She was used to, and she was mathematics. So she was very kind of linear in her thinking and yet very good at abstract. And she was fascinated with the brain, and she knew a lot about the brain because I was her daughter, and we talked every day. I mean, we were best of friends during my academics. And because I have a brother with schizophrenia, we really talked about how does our brain create our perception of reality, and how is it we can have these experiences and tell very different stories about what just happened. So, so Gigi was not ignorant to the brain concept. And when I experienced this trauma, she believed that my brain knew better than anyone outside of me what it needed in order to recover. And she thought it was her job to set me up for success. And setting me up for success meant taking me home, letting me get as much sleep as my brain needed and until I would wake up, 
And when I would wake up, she would, uh, she'd take me to the bathroom, she would feed me. And then if I had any energy at all left over, she would teach me something very small. Now that might be walking in the beginning to get me into the bathroom. It might be feeding myself, teaching me how to feed. And then everything is exhausting. And so then I'd run out of energy and she'd put me back to bed and she acted as a guard at the door because she noticed that anytime any of my friends in all their love wanted to come in and be with me, people are not really educated in how to be with somebody at that level of need. And I didn't need people coming in and talking at me and big energy and bringing stuff and in the bustle and in their own anxiety because it's like, oh my gosh, Jill's had a stroke. I had to go in. I had to hold the whole conversation. I was nervous. I blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, I leave, they leave and I'm going, oh my God, I'm absolutely exhausted from the exchange. And Gigi's observing this going, no, we're not going to let anybody in. And she wouldn't even let my boss in, which I thought was, you know, pretty bold on her part. <laughs> but she, she put me in a, a protected environment that was calm and predictable. And then she became the safe place and home became a safe place. And then I could follow my natural rhythm and then she could dance with me and give me little things to do. And she just kept watching. What is the obstacle to Jill doing this next thing? And so then she would remove that obstacle and it might be giving me information or helping me identify different parts of my, my life or of my, my body or of my mind. And, and she just explored with me with an, an, an incredible curiosity. And it was never my mother's goal to bring me back to the woman I had been before. And that's really, really important, I think, when it comes to stroke survivors, because if you've had a stroke, by definition, it means cells have some kind of damage. And if those cells have now gone offline, then I not, may not have that ability anymore or that personality characteristic anymore, depending on where the trauma is. So she really allowed me to show up as me in any way that I could. And she did not freak out. She did not project that energy onto me. She came to me gently with incredible positivity. And she, she just observed and worked with me gently and balanced that with sleep. And I can't emphasize enough the balancing of sleep. Remarkable, just remarkable. So I, I'm, I'm going to unpack a bit what you said. You know, I get shivers when you talk because it's just like dense capsules of remarkable, you know, not just, it's not the, it's so much information, it's real knowledge, but knowledge embedded in, in that requires of the, of your mom in this case, or the parent of the child with special needs, or the therapist, or the ABM practitioner, to be themselves, come from a place that takes growth and development to be able to actually do that, you know, to, ha to, be, to generate that. I'm sorry, I'm going to cough for a second. <coughs> so I'm going to take a few things. I just wrote notes very, very quick when you were talking. I want to, so I want to say nothing was too small for her to attend to. Nothing was too small for her to guide you or introduce you to 
or, or move you into. So one of the things that happens so often to people, and again, that's, you know, trying to fix the child and get them, and it's all always done with the best of intentions. It's not like the parents are giving their life to the child. It's just that we are trying to open for the parents other ways of doing that are, are positioned to give completely different results. And one of the, you know, exhibit A is you. So when you say, um, you know, don't expect the, 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 you know, with you in this case, to be the woman you were before, but look to the woman that you became, right? right? With a child, with a, with a child, they have not yet become a fully formed adult. Right. However, when they can have a trajectory that can have, help them evolve in, into magnificent beings, Right. So, so, uh, so nothing was too small. She didn't expect you to, you know, in a timetable in two months or a year or, or two weeks to go back to work. She didn't even expect you to go back to work. She was with you in the here and now looking for small openings from your point of view, small openings where she could jump in and make a request or say something or put something in your hand or the details are actually specifics are in, in this case immaterial. <clears throat> and she observed, she was actually interested in where you are. She picked up ideas or information as to how to interact with you from you. Yes. And that is such a powerful, fundamental element in connecting to another human being. And the baby and the child are just generating bits of information of where they are all the time. Those need to be attended to. And it takes a, it takes a decision, a conscious decision, because if the moment you observe doesn't mean that it will, you will know what to do or that you're still perceiving it correctly. But if you interact with it by the response of the child, you know what it is. So if I be specific, let's say the child has a CP and they have a spastic leg. I'm just making an example. And you're supposed to stretch the child, stretch the muscles, which I would never do. But... Uh, <clears throat> And you start doing it. I don't want anybody on this podcast to think I would do that. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that's okay. Anyway, so, so the, 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 but you start doing it. Look what happens to the breathing. If the chats are crying or screaming or tries to wiggle their way out, what, what else do you need? Do you need them to write a thesis and say, I don't like it, please stop. Yeah. And then very often people give psychological interpretations to the behaviors of the child of what they're observing. Yeah. So like, oh, he's doing it because he'd rather be with his brother or no. The, the most likely thing is the child's response is their response. It's authentic. Right. So when you needed to sleep 11 hours, 14 hours, I don't know, however long you needed to sleep, you needed to sleep 
you weren't manipulating anybody. You weren't uh, trying to get out of uh, rehab. You weren't, no. you were, and by the way, the sleep, the exhaustion, so, so important to know when the brain is in real learning mode, especially if there is trauma or illness or, you know, some kind of uh, um, stress in the system, you know, that calls the attention and the energy and the processes to go in that direction. Learning, real learning, organic learning is very, very demanding. So very often, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, when I work with a child, the session is over. They have changed and integrated the change and they're not going to do any more now. They can do more maybe in two hours or in four hours. So my approach is if nothing happened in the first five or 10 minutes, if nothing, small changes are not starting to happen, stop. Mm -hmm. And if something happened in these 15 minutes, stop. You know, you, you really take it in small units. I don't know about you, but the children also get very, very hungry. You know, the, 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 I guess the brain pulls more calories. So, so, and the other thing is safety. Safety is so important. And when I talk about safety, when you say safety, it's the emotional safety. The biggest part of safety comes when the person is connected to you and responsive to your experience right. and takes it seriously right. and cares about it and doesn't second guess you. Right. but keeps dancing with you. you. You, Oh, you don't want to go here. Let's try here. If here doesn't work, okay, let's try here. Oh, you look like you're hungry. Let's give you some food. It's, right. it's the real deal. It's what is. And you work with what is. And, and that's one way, part of the safety. And I, I want to add to that, Anat, that, that sure. in that safety is a thrill. There's an absolute thrill on my end that there is someone I can connect with because if I'm in that condition, here is another who cares enough to really connect to my heart. And that is like everything. It's like everything. And, and of course I want to perform for that person. I want to, I want to give that person what they're looking for and work with them and do my part of the dance and it's really beautiful when that connection happens. So, so if you do set us up for that kind of a connection, then, then I show up a thousand percent for you because I want to recover. I just, I just, otherwise I exist in a state of everything is aversively painful or, or fearful. And to actually find that safe caveat says, oh my gosh, I can come forward. I can recover. And the process of recovery, when organization comes into that chaos, it is like, it's literally mind opening and heart opening. And oh my gosh, I can come back. And I think there should always be the assumption that there's nothing more beautiful or more precious or the greatest gift anyone can give as being in the present moment, present in your body, present in your attention, present in a connection and willing to just let it unfold at the speed it needs to. Beautiful. Just beautiful the way you said it. You know, for many, many years, 
I do certain things with children, whatever it is. And sometimes it includes, you know, of course I put you know, gloves and I make sure and I get permission from the parent, but I work directly in their mouth, you know, and uh, that you'll understand because of the in dense connectivity between the mouth and the brain. So it's really the best entry point oftentimes to get that brain to start figuring out how to organize itself better. Anyway, but the parents look at me and say, I can't believe he or she lets you do this. And then they say, they let you do anything. You can do anything with them. And I never thought of it in the terms you just described, you know. And at the same time, I'm not, when I love watching you work because when you work with anyone, you move into, I am absolutely completely available here and connected to you. And the look of love that comes over your whole essence, the look on your face, your, the softness of your body, the willingness to be, the, the, it, it is so magnificent just to watch you in motion. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah. No, wow. you take that completely to every person, every session you give. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know the gift they receive. Thank you. So one of the questions we got repeatedly in a variety of ways, we we got a huge response and parents are just wonderful. And, you know, one of them yesterday just said, I'm, I'm lost. I don't know where we've tried everything and, you know, this and that, and we've done a little bit of a Nadbanil method, you know, near movement. And I actually tried to communicate, to give the parents, first of all, a sense that the brain is an information system and the way it operates is not like a mechanical system. So let's say if I'm going to have to go buy food supplies, food supplies for a week, right? I'll go to the supermarket and I'll take a big basket and I can feel, literally feel, as I'm getting myself more food, right? Mm -hmm. So the more I put in the basket, the more outcome I get. So I took that metaphor and I said, the child's brain is not a basket. Mm -hmm. The more you put into it, it's not gonna make it necessarily better. And if you do too much or combinations or so on, it can actually be uh, detracting from the progress. And I think people listening to this podcast will get a feeling just because of what we said up until now. So the question is, the parents ask, so what therapy should I do? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how do I know? Or even the question is, let me pose you the question that I think would be easier for you to, to answer. How do I know whether to stay with this therapy or, or not? So I just say, do one thing at a time. You know, don't do a basket approach to your child recovery. However, how do they know? What would you say to that? Uh, you know, I, I, this is something that I come up against all the time. As stroke survivors contact me all the time. And I encourage them to uh, go to your website. Um, and I encourage them to go to your website because you do for other people what my mother and I did for me. And I believe that that obviously I am here. I am alive. I am a thousand percent. I am full force energy. I am back in the world. And the medical world looks at me and says, uh, you know, wow, I mean, that she's just the outlier. And I don't believe I am the outlier. 
I believe that we figured out how to communicate with my brain in a way that was effective. And, um, and, and you know, physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy um, work the system in a certain way. But those systems are all based on a brain, on a belief system in neuroanatomy that the brain is fixed in, in what it's going to be and it cannot change. And we've learned since the 80s that there is neuroplasticity and that the cells do change and are constantly rearranging who they're communicating with. So anybody listening to this podcast, they will have a different brain at the end than they had before they came into it simply because they are making new associations, they're thinking in different ways, and their little neurons are reconnecting through their neuro, neuro uh, circuitry. So um, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that 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 this system and and I love this system, which is why I'm just a huge advocate for this system. Uh, I took half of your training so that I could wrap my mind around why is this system so effective and what's it actually doing to the brain. I believe that this system works with the neurocircuitry of the brain and it does it in a kind and gentle and slow and all the nine essentials that you emphasize in the treatment program. So I know people are frustrated and so they'll try anything. And I, I have to say I landed with ABM because I believe in you. I believe in, in the process. I believe in the essentials. I've watched amazing things happen every time I'm with you. Uh, I, I mean, it just blows my mind what this particular system. So personally, I, I probably didn't answer your question, but I do the same thing with my stroke survivors because stroke survivors come to me and they say, you know, what do we do? And I say, go to the anatomybenyamethod.com. And, and they say, but, um, you know, do I do my PT and my OT and my speech and therapy? Because they're paid for, they're covered by, by my insurance. And I say to them, but are you getting the outcomes that you want based on the payment system? And you have to remember that that system is built on the idea that the brain cannot recover. And that's everything to me. So, so those systems are designed to recover you up to your level of, li of limitation. And then it will leave you there. And then insurance will go away. And then you will begin to, to digress. And then you'll be, go looking for something new and something more. And uh, so, and I had to make this major decision when I lost my shoulder and had to have my entire shoulder uh, rebuilt. And uh, do I follow my normal PT or do I do ABM? And there was no question in my mind, you know, I was at your facility inside of a week. I was going to do your process because your process was going to allow me a complete recovery. If I worked with myself, I was going to recover much more than if I did what I was told to do, which was a painful traditional rehabilitation. So sorry, I just gave you a plug, I'm afraid. Um, I will overcome that. <laughs> system. I really believe in this system. And I think that, that there's fear is the greatest barrier between success and no success. And when the system says do this because we'll pay for that versus this system that will actually 
get, take, take that body, take that brain, take the anatomy, work with the cells in order to create a different kind of connection in a different kind of way. I just believe in the outcomes of this process. And, and unfortunately, when you look at the nine essentials and you compare that to traditional systems, they are virtually opposite from one another. So if you have someone who is doing traditionals as well as ABM, they're kind of countering one another. And there's, you know, to me, uh, there's no focus there. And you're making it harder for that brain to figure out what exactly are we doing here? Yeah. Thank you. So I'm going to just take here just a few things. First of all, you talk about fear, and it's really important to understand what fear, and we're not going to go, I know that's a big, big part of your things you're interested in, but, but fear in a very not politically correct way of saying it, fear makes us stupid. It limits us. It makes us so that we, we can't use our own abilities for receiving and sensing and integrating and making choices that take a risk that we decide that are better, like what Gigi did. Gigi had in her who she was as a person, being a mathematician, being, uh, knowing about the brain already, and loving you. The love of you, I think, was the, the big, you know, but she used the love rather than getting terrified is becoming a lioness mom. Right. She was not looking to accommodate anybody or please anybody or be a yes to anybody. She was a yes or a no, depending on you. And right. she got the information from you, from observing you, not from the only idea she carried, the main idea she carried, not the only is that you are the best source of information of what you need. Yes. Not the source of information of how the solution will be achieved because you weren't in a position, you know, just like a child. They don't know once they are derailed, you know, due to the, the whatever happened to them. They are unlikely, for example, to find the way to rolling over or crawling or talking on their own. How, so I come in with ideas. I bring in the novelty and do this and do that. However, they keep being the, even what to do when I feel what their bodies, where it's moving, where it's not moving, and, and how they respond is building my ideas. But I, ha I have to provide that. So coming to fear, it's really important. We can't you, I can't tell a parent to not be anxious or to not feel guilty or to not be petrified thinking of the future. Of course they're going to be. They're alive. They, they are responding. But what I can call upon a parent is to recognize that they're fearful and to give themselves more time. Yes. Again, if it's not life and death, if it's not, you know, a medical emergency, and to, and to observe the child and to so how do you decide when you said the nine essentials and you know we're going to be talking about nine essentials in the future on the blog uh but you already said the slow the gentle and the paying attention and in this case it's not just the attention to the other but when you move what you feel and what you sense these are already three uh, it's a third of all the essentials right it's important to understand that 
like when you say, okay, you can do the, you know, the rehab because the doctor, the insurance pays for it. And then if you reach the ceiling that is totally predictable that you will reach because of the, the intervention, how it impacts the brain and uses the plasticity of the brain, then you can go and look for something else. But the point is it's not neutral. You see, it's not just, okay, we'll, right. we'll keep pressing the child and pushing the child. Neural networks form all the time, as you said. And they form, the brain is built to organize itself and the environment. The, the brain puts order in the disorder. It literally creates patterns. And the, only, the pa- patterns can only be created based on what it experienced. So, for example, if a child is always put standing up with enormous amount of effort and the legs get spastic and they hold their breath and they f- are afraid of falling, that's what standing up looks like right. for them. It's not like, oh, it can be better so they will somehow jump. So I think it's really important that people recognize that in order to get to an activity, um, it, it, there's from A to Z. And if you focus from, if, if you jump from A to T, there's, and, and standing is, is a great example of everything that the brain has to know in order to stand correctly. And, but but if you're taking a child who's at C and you're jumping them to T and they're standing and they're wobbling, then that's because there are all these little things, little connections inside of the brain and body that are not working together yet. And if you're, you're doing a, a, a therapy where you're taking a child who's not ready to stand, I mean, you have to go through the different processes. The, the brain is connecting all the little muscles that it takes in order to get there. And if, those, if the structure's not there, you can't have the function. Thank you. I forgot to turn my alarm off. <laughs> before doing this so it's a little active so before i'm doing the last question here my friend my dear dear friend alarm alarm alert alert it was perfect for fear for fear (laughs) talking about fear right so can you show can you show how you move your arms oh yeah Oh, yeah, this is the one that was problematic. When I first came to you, I had had six months of atrophy. It was curled up. I was just completely protecting that mass as a mass. And the first week that I worked with you, you got that off of my torso so that it could actually hang and drape. And then I could begin to do a little bit of weight training in order to be able to regain function and movement. So I I have absolutely 100% range of motion. It, and I gave it a year, you know, my doctor wanted it back in three months. He wanted it back in six months. And it was like, no, I'm going to do what I need to do to really communicate with this system in order to get all the little parts happy. So then I have the outcome. And, and unfortunately, with, the, with all the focus on the outcome, instead of recognizing all the little bitty steps along the way that someone has to regain in order to be able to perform that function. And I'd like to add to that because in the image, they can only see, you know, your shoulder and so on. But I, I didn't even touch your shoulder no. for a, quite a while because the, any movement we do, the brain has to holistically organize 
all the parts, all the way down to your feet and toes from the top of your head. And for an arm to, to move, for example, a huge part of it is what your lower back is doing and what your torso is doing. Right. And her torso was fine and her lower back was fine and her pelvis was fine. I mean, your pelvis, uh, I'm talking about you. So I could help your brain recreate the image, the dynamic image, three-dimensional image of moving the arm without touching the arm. And that's what got the, 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 you know, the freedom to start being more erect because you came, you were, you were literally hunched over and you, you, you couldn't straighten yourself. And, and so that's kind of important that people know it wasn't like I was working gently on your arm. And I I mean, I, I, I didn't even touch the arm. No, no. And one of the things with that was I had, you know, this is my right shoulder. My mother had just passed and for six months I couldn't do surgery because Gigi got diagnosed with cancer and I had to tend to her and I wanted to tend to her. I couldn't do shoulder surgery. So it atrophied and it got worse and worse and worse. And there was this huge wound. And for me, emotionally, it was enormous because I had just lost my mother, my best friend, my right arm. And here I was the metaphor of losing my right arm and so you know little Jill was here just in my own pain and my own terror and my own fear and I came to you and you just loved me you loved me you put me in a safe place and you said we will work with you and and you just gave all of me an awareness so that I could become a whole being again and then and you know I love that literally half of the fibers go bilaterally so you can work on this shoulder and know that you're having an impact on the wounded shoulder without having to directly go into that that trauma uh, and it, it was beautiful yeah Thank you, thank you, and thank you for trusting me. I mean, Jill took an airplane with this pillow. I mean, she got herself to somehow to the airport, and I mean, it was just like I looked at her and said, "I can't believe she made it from you know the Midwest all the way to California." Yeah. So, so, and yeah, yeah. I was going to say something else. I don't remember about that. So, before we finish. You know, as you mentioned, you have taken, uh, you've done half of the training program because you wanted to understand. And you came into a room with uh, 110 or so people. And amongst those people, there's a good number of parents of children with special needs that have brought their child to us and have seen the results and uh, decided to take the training to be able to work with their child and many of them in order to work with other children too. And you befriended a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, what would you like to share with us about what you learned about their experience? And I know that you have contributed to them a lot. You supported them. You talked to them. So can you tell first from your experience, not just what you gave them, because you gave them, I know, a lot. But what was it like for you to all of a sudden be surrounded because they just glommed onto you because they wanted to hear from you about their child and their child's brain and all that stuff. You know, it, it's, uh, it was just a big love fest. I mean, I, I have to say people who come into the work come in because they value it. They know what it can do. Uh, the experience of you, um, they come in as their loving selves. And uh, I just, and, you know, we're, we're just open to the wonder. And that's part of this work is to, to be curious and to approach with wonder. And it's not just the, the clients who, that becomes a, a state of how am I? How do I become? And 
And so I think we were all nurtured in becoming more of our wonder, more of our curiosity, and that applied to one another as we're working on one another. It was just an enormously loving, beautiful uh, thing. I, I mean, this is my tribe. These are my, my pack. Um, uh, you know, coming to the graduation was so important to me to be able to celebrate this uh, enormous accomplishment as they go out to the world and to just love and be loved. I mean, it's, it's uh, an, an amazing culture. Uh, that gets established inside of the organization. And so, you know, whenever I travel anywhere, I tend to, if I know that I'm going to go somewhere, uh, I call them up and see if I can get an ABM lesson while I'm there because <laughs> it's like, you know, let's just do ABM around the world. Why not? So, so and, and, and for me, you know, to be able to be of assistance in helping them think about this work and think about their brains and especially if they're, they're doing some uh, working with someone with stroke, but, but I literally, I, I, and the more people in the community I know personally, actually, the easier it is for me because I am always calling Dalit and saying, okay, who do you have here? And then I send people there because, uh, you know, I'm just a part of this big global network of ABM and I'm, I happen to be receiving a lot of people in need. And so I'm more than happy to infuse that into the network. So for me, it's a magnificent uh, uh, community and, and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be here. And Jill, let me cue you a bit into the, the question. When the parents say, but my child has this damage in the brain or that damage to the brain, you say, <laughs> I'm going to cue you. You know, I look at a lot of the brain slides for these, for these children, and I say, yes, look at this problem. But, oh, my God, look at all this healthy tissue we have to work with. And I think that, that it's really important to remember that, sure, my child might have certain problems in the neural network, but look at all the healthy tissue that we have to work with. And it's really about how do we communicate with that? How do we wake that up? How do we get that being more effective? How do we get those cells to reach into the part? that does not have order and the more order we create in the overall brain with the overall body then whatever cells are confused they come back into the network will they ever function normally we don't know what is normal but we can pretty well guarantee that if you've got neuroplasticity going on in the brain and you're using a technique that is stimulating that then those cells are trying to incorporate into the overall network normal function and that's why a lot of people come to me and say well how can how can working on my body help me with my aphasia and it's like well because aphasia is just a group of cells inside of the brain that that, that allow you to speak. And so if everybody is waking up, you have to ask why are those cells not incorporated into the network and performing their function? And can we do these other things in order to help wake them up, bring them out into the bigger picture, create more order, and then manifest as language? So I love this technique. Thank you. Jill, love having you in my life in our community i know that our community loves having you and thank you for a magnificent conversation and maybe more to come more to come let's wonder beautiful <laughs> perfect love yeah. everybody thank and you goodbye for everybody for thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you in this uh, one and in the next ones thank you very much <laughs>